Coming up on Philosophy Talk. 2012, the examined year. A philosophical look back at the year that was. The year in politics. The year in democracy. The year in truth. What we have now is a speech act called counterbalancing, where everyone thinks that it's justified to stretch or exaggerate or flat out say false things in order to counterbalance the false things said on the other side. The year in thinking. The year in artificial intelligence. The 100th birthday of Alan Turing. Could you construct a computer system that would be able to carry on a dialogue with a person so well it would be indistinguishable from a person? The year in science. The year in genomics. Right now, the big selling point for the Endangered Species Act is extinction is forever. But what if it isn't? The year in philosophy. It's the examined year, 2012. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Our program comes to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. We continue conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. That's where Ken and I are professors of philosophy. Today, it's a special edition of Philosophy Talk, the examined year 2012. Socrates said that the unexamined life is not worth living, which means any year worth living through must be worth examining and examining through the lens of philosophy. Now, a very big event of 2012, at least here in the U.S., was our presidential election. From a philosophical perspective, it was an utterly fascinating campaign because it raised important questions about the role of truth in our political discourse. We'll discuss the year in truth in American politics with Jason Stanley from Rutgers University later in the program. 2012 was also a year in which we once again inch closer to making science fiction become science reality. Scientists finally completed the sequencing of the entire human genome, but new advances in stem cell research herald an age that will give us unparalleled power over the entire biosphere. Will we have the wisdom to use that power well? We'll work through these issues with Hank Greeley, director of the Stanford Center for Law and the Biosciences. 2012 also marks the 100th anniversary of the founding father of computer science and artificial intelligence, the one and only Alan Turing. We'll take the opportunity of Turing's centennial both to look back and to look forward at what Turing hath wrought with Barbara Gross from the Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. To get us started on the examined year, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Esch, to find out more about the remarkable life of Alan Turing. She files this report. Alan Turing is not exactly a household name. One of the things that drew me to this story is that most people have never heard of him, and uh, he really is someone that everyone should know about. Patrick Salmon is the creator and executive producer of Codebreaker, a documentary film with dramatic recreations of Turing's life. Turing was born in London in 1912. During World War II, he was recruited to crack German codes at a country estate called Bletchley Park. Turing actually broke the German naval enigma code, secret messages sent to U-boats in the Atlantic. Here's a scene from Codebreaker. The Germans believed that this machine was completely unbreakable. Turing sat down with an enigma machine and he looked at it and he thought, I can break that. 
Historians say that the successful code-breaking effort shortened the war by as much as two years and saved millions of lives. Turing's work during the war was top secret. After the war, he helped create the first computer. Here's a scene from an interview with Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. When you look back in something like computers, there's often a seed that everything came from. Alan Turing was sort of at the top of everything that ever developed, all the future research that was done by people building real equipment that can clink, 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 compute. Turing was a genius. And he was strange. He dressed very oddly and, and quite shabby in, in many cases. At Bletchley Park, he was known to wear pajamas under his jacket. He would wear a gas mask to work because he suffered from hay fever. During the war, he uh, was concerned about a, a German invasion of, of England, and so he bought some silver, and he buried the silver in case there was an invasion. But he ended up forgetting where he had buried it, so it's actually never been found. Turing was also gay. Salmon says Turing didn't hide his sexuality, which was uncommon for the time. Here's Joan Clark, the woman Turing nearly married. He told me that he had this homosexual tendency. Naturally, that worried me a bit because I did know that was something which was almost certainly permanent. But um, we carried on. In late 1951, Alan Turing meets a young man in Manchester named Arnold Murray. Eventually, Turing invites Murray over to his house for dinner, and they end up having a brief relationship that lasts six weeks or two months, very brief. Patrick Salmon says Arnold Murray was a 19-year-old from the wrong side of the tracks. He stole money from Turing, and then Turing came home one day to find his house had been burgled, apparently by one of Murray's friends. When he finds out who's responsible for the burglary, he calls the police. Here's a dramatized account of what followed. It's a conversation between Turing and his psychiatrist, Dr. Franz Greenbaum. So what did you say to the police? I told them everything. I told them I'd been having an affair with Arnold Murray and that he'd given my address to a young man who was known to burgle men he'd met for sex. Turing then faces criminal charges for gross indecency and he pleads guilty. Here's Salmon. As part of the guilty plea, the judge gives him a choice. Turing can either go to prison for a year or he can get put on probation. But as a condition of the probation, he has to take hormone therapy. He chooses hormone therapy, chemical castration. After all this, Turing finds he's being followed by the police. Here's a scene from an interview with Turing's biographer, David Levitt. We have to remember 1952 was the absolute height of Cold War paranoia, during which the idea of the homosexual traitor was taking hold in the popular imagination. Homosexuals must not be handling top secret material. The pervert is easy prey to the blackmailer. Turing could no longer live an ordinary life, and in 1954, at the age of 41, he committed suicide by poisoning himself with cyanide. And so England lost one of the greatest minds of the 20th century, the father of artificial intelligence and early computers, the eccentric codebreaker Alan Turing. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. I'm John Perry. With me is my fellow Stanford philosopher, Ken Taylor. To hear the rest of this program, head to philosophytalk.org. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.